you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. We're getting into some really good stuff. It's getting better. I can't wait. Every chapter it gets better. There's some passages that are coming up that are just so great. I just want to catch fire and burn to the ground. (laughs) But I'm not a phoenix, so I wouldn't resurrect again. That'd be it. When I was growing up as a young boy, one of the things I liked to do is on the side of our house, we had this planter and there were these rocks that bordered the planter. And I would go out there and with my little jar and a little stick and I'd roll over those rocks because under those rocks, there were some good bugs. And uh, the rocks were nothing special, but the bugs were significant. Little pill bugs and sow bugs and you know, centipedes and millipedes and you know, little pincher bugs, earwigs. And oh, that's great. And so I used to do all kinds of things with those bugs. But I, there's something I learned, and that is this. As soon as I would turn the rock over, all the bugs would run for the darkness. They would run for, for any place because they didn't like the light. And I was thinking about that as I was looking at the text today and realized that demons don't like the light either, especially the light of Christ. And what we are going to see in the text today is Jesus having an encounter with a demon-possessed person, and that demon wants to run for the darkness and flee from the light. Isaiah in Isaiah chapter nine, verses one and two talks about the Messiah in these words. He says on the other side of the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. And those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. And that is what we're going to see in the text today in the land of the Gentiles of Galilee. Jesus is showing up. And he is going to shine his light and the people are going to see it. Now, this text that we're going to be looking at this morning, verses 31 through 37, is the second episode in Jesus's ministry that Luke records after his baptism and temptation. Of course, we remember what happened during the first episode. Jesus, after ministering in other places, Luke just barely alludes to it, shows up in his hometown of Nazareth among his friends and family and people who knew him. And they've heard all of these rumors and they're pretty excited. And so they give him a spot in the synagogue and say, hey, why don't you teach on the prophets? So he says, okay. So he goes to a messianic text and says, hey, I'm the Messiah and you're spiritually sick and I've come to fix you. And they try and kill him. They they get so angry that they drive him to the outskirts of town, hoping to throw him off a cliff. But miraculously, according to verse 30, he passes through their midst. And then the next time Luke picks up, he's in Capernaum. Now we know from Matthew that Capernaum becomes Jesus's home base of operation because he's rejected in Nazareth. They say, okay, what we'll do is we'll have you. uh, He says, I'll just go up and I'll kind of have my base of operations there. He brings his disciples and says, I'll just have you around me here. And then we'll kind of go out from there. So from then on, Capernaum is kind of his new hometown. And Nazareth was located about 10 miles southwest of the Sea of Galilee, 
Capernaum is right on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee, about 25 miles from Nazareth. And so here Jesus is. And he's going to be teaching again in the synagogue. Now let's see what happens. Look at verse 31 of Luke chapter 4. And he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were amazed at his teaching, for his message was with authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, let us alone. What business do we have to do with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be quiet and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in the midst of the people who came out of him without doing any harm, an amazement came upon them all. And they began talking with one another, saying, this is what is this message for with authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. Now, from this text, I want to show you four principles of true spiritual warfare that you should know, especially in light of all the false teaching about spiritual warfare that's going on and which you can imply in order to have victory over Satan in your own life. And the first is this. You engage in spiritual warfare primarily by teaching and preaching and proclaiming the word of God. Look at verses 31 and 32. It says, and he came down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. He was teaching them on the Sabbath and they were amazed at his teaching for his message was one with authority. Now we have already noted this before and we're going to continue to note it because the Bible continues to note it. Jesus went around And the primary purpose of his ministry was to teach and to preach. Why did he do that? Because it's the primary means which God has chosen to impact culture, to save sinners, to help them grow in godliness. Preaching and teaching are not, as some suppose, some sort of ancient, outdated, you know, dinosaur method of communication that needs to be replaced with music and drama and skits and juggling. It is true that preaching is an old method. And you could probably rightly say it's a dinosaur type method. But it still is the method that God chooses to both save and sanctify people. That is, help them grow in godliness. And this is not an option. For instance, 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 21 says that it's by the preaching of the word that people get saved. It is the method and we have to do it. This is why it will always be the mainstay of any church that chooses to please God. The preaching, the teaching, the communication of God's word verbally by one person possessed of the spirit of God living in the power of the spirit Proclaiming to God's people is the method God chooses. That is how we are supposed to do it in the church. Now, it's interesting to note that Jesus tried preaching in Nazareth, didn't he? He came, he taught there, and they tried to kill him. And notice, Jesus didn't say, God, that didn't work very good. And maybe we should do something else. Maybe I should do, you know, act out something, do a pantomime. 
You know, the preaching wasn't well received. No, the first thing he does is he goes directly to Capernaum and he does what? The same thing. The same thing. Why did he do this? Because that's the method God has chosen. When did he do this? The text says, if you look there, it was on the Sabbath. It was on the Sabbath, according to verse 31. And what was the effect? Look at verse 32. They were amazed at his teaching. The same thing that happened in Nazareth, right? They were amazed. And the word amazed literally means to knock out of position. If you're standing there and I were to hit you with a baseball bat, I would knock you out of position. Well, that's the same idea here. The word amaze means to strike with a blow. His teaching was so incredible, so different than anything they'd ever heard before. They were just knocked out of their normality into amazement and wonder. Well, you can understand why this is when you understand what they were used to. Back in those days, the rabbis in the synagogue would spend their time quoting other famous rabbis. As a matter of fact, I read of one rabbi who at the end of his life said, I am thankful that during all of my life, I never said anything that wasn't a quote from someone else. Now that would be hard to do. That would be a boast. Uh, That would be significant. Not as significant as cell phones in church, but significant. So what they were used to is they would come in the synagogue and some rabbi would get up there and say, well, you know, rabbi so-and-so said this and rabbi so-and-so said that and rabbi so-and-so said this. And what would happen is, is, is their sermons were all an entire history lesson of interpretations of other men at different times in different places. They were non-confrontive, non-direct, very historical quotathons. That's what they were. They were quotathons. And the people were used to that. I mean, that's what they expected. They came to synagogue. It's time for a quotathon. Jesus, however, comes along and he doesn't quote anybody. He doesn't appeal to anyone else's interpretation. He just merely speaks the truth, tells them what it means, and commands them to obey it. And he speaks to them very directly. You have to do this. And when they heard this, it was so radically different that they thought, man, this guy speaks with authority. This guy speaks like he's God. And he was. And he was speaking the word of God. And there is a lesson here for all of us about spiritual warfare. Some will tell us that spiritual warfare is, you know, casting out demons and nullifying spells and incantations and binding evil spirits and, you know, dealing with generational demons and all sorts of ridiculous things. And granted, Jesus did cast out demons. It was a small part of his ministry. He did it to verify that he was the Messiah, that he was the anointed one of God. Those times he cast out demons that did miracles were to verify who he was, that he was the son of man and the son of God. But we, however, do not need to demonstrate that we are the Messiah. And so we don't need to do those things. We have the word of God. 
But we can, even though we can't model our ministry off of the miraculous things Jesus did. The lesson to learn here is we can still model our ministry off of the method and content that he used to communicate. Now, if you are going to teach or preach with authority like Jesus, if I were to say, I want you to teach with authority in Sunday school class, I mean, what do you do? How would you do that? Be men. I mean, would that work? Or maybe you could just be definitive. I'm telling you, this is what I believe. I mean, would that be authoritative? How do you do this? Well, the first thing you need to realize is this. There's two important things. And the first thing you need to realize is the source of authority. For instance, when Paul tells Timothy in Titus 2.15, these things teach and preach with all authority and let no one disregard you. When he says that, what's Titus supposed to do? Where is the source of his authority? It's in the, these things. What things are those? The things that Paul taught. The things in the Bible. And who gave those things to Paul? Where did the Bible come from? God. There's the source of authority. God is always the source of authority. You're never the source of authority. I'm never the source of authority. If I get up here and start, you know, I feel this and it's my opinion that you can just say, just fall asleep. But you know what? When you quote from the word of God, who's speaking then? God is. When you say God says or thus saith the Lord, God speaks and God has authority. He has all authority. Secondly, you need to remember if you're teaching and preaching or even communicating the word of God, even in a casual conversation, you need to remember that you have no power in and of yourself To save anybody or sanctify anybody. That is, make them more like Christ. There are many who believe that there is, you know, power in teaching techniques and preaching techniques and and communication techniques. And you hear people say things like, oh, so-and-so, they are a powerful preacher. You ever heard that? He is a powerful teacher. I really like him. But let me ask you this. Is the person powerful or is the content powerful? You see, this is what you need to realize because you you will become frustrated if you think you need to save somebody and sanctify somebody because you won't be able to. You will be exasperated. You will be exasperated if you think that your communication skills and techniques can do that because they can't. Now, it's true that there is some power not to save or sanctify in being a good teacher and communicator or preacher. For instance, a good teacher is good at explaining the text, at applying the text, at making the text understandable and rememberable. Those things are good, but they don't save and sanctify. The power... To save and sanctify always comes from the Holy Spirit, never from you. See, the scriptures are kind of like medicine. And let's say you were in the hospital and you had some 
thing and you needed to be monitored and have medications given to you. There are nurses there who do that. And those nurses go around and, you know, they have pills and shots and put stuff in IVs. And that medicine is prescribed by a doctor and it makes you better. Now, let's just say you had a real scattered brained nurse who kept forgetting to give you your medication and uh, giving your shots to somebody else, forgetting to put stuff in your IV. So you're just getting sugar water or salt water or whatever. I mean, you are getting the medicine. Well, you aren't going to get better. Now, contrast that person with a very efficient, very faithful nurse who gives you all the medications you need at just the right time. Now, does that nurse heal you? No. The medication heals you. The nurse is just the administrator of the medication, right? And this is how it is with teaching and preaching and talking to other people about the word of God. The power is not in you to save or sanctify. The power is in you to administer faithfully but the power itself comes from the word of god and the holy spirit attesting the word of god you get the word in their head that's your job god's job to take the word and save and change them more into the image of christ so know this and this is what's exciting about this is that even though you aren't jesus You can preach the same word of God that Jesus preached in the power of the Holy Spirit, just like Jesus. And you can expect the same results that Jesus had. They're going to try and kill you or people will be saved. And that's neat. That that is great. But never get confused. You know, don't. I grew up in a church for a while that, you know, the pastor up there, well, if you don't, you know, share the gospel just right, no, people are going to go to hell and their blood will be on your head. And then, then you're terrified. You don't even want to share the gospel because, you know, somebody might go to hell because of you. Listen, God is the one who saves and God is the one who sanctifies. And he used very imperfect gospel presentations. All you have to do is look at the Bible. And, you know, you see that, you know, they didn't give the, the four spiritual laws of the Philippian jailer. They just said, believe and you will be saved. And he did. And he was. You know, that's an easy presentation. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you should be saved. You know, try that one. But what's encouraging here is this. You have the word of God. You have the Holy Spirit. And when you teach it, you can teach with authority. And be certain you don't have to sit there and go, well, you know, I don't know. I, you know, I, I mean, I, yeah, yeah. What is that? You can say with all authority, listen, stealing is wrong because God says so. You don't have to apologize for that. You can say whenever you say the Bible says or God says You're quoting the word of God. You're stating the principles in the word of God. You can do it with all authority. You don't have to let anybody disregard you. And that message is with authority because God said it. And if they have a problem, they can take it up with with God. Okay, that's the first thing we learned from Jesus's example. The second thing is this. You must remember that Satan is a faithful church attender. 
Look at verse 33. Luke moves now from a general description of Jesus' activities in Capernaum to a very specific incident which happened one Sabbath day. The text says, in the synagogue, there was a man possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon. Now, before we move on, we need to ask ourselves, what does it mean to be possessed by the spirit of an unclean demon? And we get into a whole realm of very interesting things. And believe me, I would love to just preach to you for about 30 hours and just unload on you. But I can't. So as we encounter little demon episodes in the gospel of Luke, I'll kind of go on rabbit trails. And we're eventually, by the end of Luke, we'll try and get all the pertinent stuff in. But for right now, two important biblical facts about this. The first is this. Believers cannot be demon-possessed. And secondly, nowhere, just get this, nowhere in any of the letters to the churches is any instruction or exhortation or encouragement to cast demons out of anyone. In fact, demon possession is never mentioned a single time in any of the letters. Keep that in mind. Now, let's talk about this. How would you like it? How would you like it if you, know, you came into my office, you had some problems, you're struggling with some different sins in your life, and I said, you know, you've got demons. All of a sudden your eyes get big and you're thinking, well, what do you mean? <laughs> well, do you want to do these sins? Well, no. Well, then it's obviously demons. You're full of demons. How do I get them out? Well, let me see if I can pray for you. I've got this little exorcism prayer. And so I pray for you and it doesn't work. You keep sinning. And now you're terrified. Now you think, oh, no, I've got all these demons in me and no one can get them out. And these God hating creatures are dwelling in me. And you know what? I've had people in my office whose pastors told them that very thing. That is mean, and it is cruel, and it is of Satan. Christians cannot be possessed by demons. This is why you need to know what the Bible says, because if you don't, you will encounter somebody who tells you you can have a demon, and then every time you you sin, oh, you've got a demon in you. And you will also encounter people whose pastors or friends or whatever told them they had demons. And and it is cruel to think that you've got demons in you when you don't. Now, first, we need to ask and answer the simple question. What is demon possession or what does it mean to be demonized? Well, it's pretty basic. It's this. It's when one or more demons enters into an unbeliever and can totally control them from within. God at times allows demons to enter into unbelievers who are already the children of Satan. And God allows them to be controlled by one or more demons from within. And when you look at different texts on demon possession in the Gospels, this is what you will discover. That it always talks of them entering into people and getting cast out of. Which tells us their location of residence is within the unbeliever. Luke talks about the spirit of an unclean 
demon and the word uh, unclean is uh, you might know the word catharsis to cleanse or purge and uh, let's see what's that word sometimes it's alpha privative do you know that um, uh, you put an you put an a in front of it which negates it which is uh, like moral and amoral well somebody who's amoral doesn't have morals okay um, uh, this is catharsis with an ah in front of it it's Acatharsis, which means unclean, defiled, not purged. So this guy has this unclean demon in him. Now, there is much more that might be said, but I just want to talk about a second issue here, and that is why Christians cannot be demon-possessed. I want you to know, this is going to be a very quick review. This is a rabbit trail. This is a good one. Um, On the 27th of June, over in the MSA, our famous pastor, Jeff Jones will go into this in much more detail. And he is waiting for people to ask him all the hardest questions they can. Um, So make sure that you go there and find out more. But here's a quick summary of why Christians can't be demon possessed. I want to give you eight reasons. Reason number one, the believer is a child of God. Now, let me ask you, you're let's say you're a parent. You have children. Would you allow some wicked, evil person to take your child away from you if you could help it? Well, of course not. And let me ask you this. How powerful is God? And are you his child? Who is going to take God's child away from him? No one. Secondly, believers are God's own possession. You know, you see two little kids playing things and one little kid grabs something from another little kid and goes, mine. Okay, so he took something from him. But who can take anything from God? Who dare would even try to take anything from God? We are God's own possession. He paid for us with the blood of his precious son. And so how could Satan take possession of one of God's children? Third, God promises to protect believers from the evil one. There are many verses on this. But listen, if a a believer could be demon possessed, God would be a liar. Listen, I'm just going to quote two verses. Second Thessalonians three, three. But the Lord is faithful and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. First John five, 18 says basically the same thing. He who is born of God keeps him, that is Christ, and the evil one does not touch him. How much more touched could you be than possessed by a demon? I mean, what else could they do to you? If God protects believers from the evil one, if God keeps believers from the evil one, then how could a believer possess, be possessed by a demon? They couldn't. Fourth, believers abide in Christ. Now, get this. We talked about the location of demons. If you are in Christ and a demon's in you, then where is the demon? Not in a good place. Not in a place that they would want to be and not in a place that Christ would allow them to be. Not only that, fifthly, Christ abides in believers. Not only are you in Christ, but Christ is in you. Now, you think Christ is in there rooming with a demon? Not in your life. Not only do you have Christ in you, the Holy Spirit lives in you. You are sealed with the Holy Spirit and it's taken up residence in you. And do you think the Holy Spirit's rooming with the demon? Not in your life. Not only that, believers are victorious in Christ. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8. This is just a great passage. Even if you don't have any reason to turn here and read this, it's still fun to read. 
It's just one of those great encouraging passages. But look at verse 37 of Romans chapter 8. After he's talking about all the incredible things we have in Christ and the the walk of the spirit versus the walk of the flesh. Now, there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. He's summing up this is the climax of the book where he's just talking about just how great it is and how safe it is and how sure it is to be in Jesus. And he says in verse 37, but in all these things, what things are those? Well, he just got through talking about tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword in verse 35. In all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. Now, just raise your hand here. This is a survey. How many people here have Nike shoes at home? Come on. Come on. Just do it. Um, Okay, now get this. The Greek word for conquer is nike, nikao. Now, what's interesting is Paul, he loves to dabble with words. He likes to supercharge words. And so he likes to add little prefixes on them. And here he takes the Greek prefix huper, which when the English equivalent would be super, and he supercharges nikao. So he gets huper nikao, supercharged conqueror is what it means. That's what Nike means, conqueror. And that is why the text says we are overwhelmingly conquerors, or as other translations stated, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Now, what's interesting is Paul then goes on to say, to describe in more detail, he's already talked about, you know, persecution, tribulation, uh, distress, famine, nakedness, peril, and sword. He goes on to explain some more things that we are hooper nikao over. And what are those things? Well, look at verse 38. For I'm convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. Now, I just want to point out a few things here. Notice he mentions angels. Notice he mentions principalities, which is a category or a rank of angel. Notice he also mentions powers, another category or rank of angel and notice he mentions any other created thing which certainly includes anything created now let me ask you this do you need to conquer holy angels well no they're all there to do you good right And so when he says we overwhelmingly conquer through angels, principalities, powers, and any other created thing, the only angels he could be talking about are fallen angels. And he says we overwhelmingly conquer them. Well, how could it be that you are totally controlled by a demon from within if you are a hooper, hyper conqueror? You couldn't be. Eight. Believers are responsible and able to obey Christ at at all times. You know, we have everything we need for life and godliness, don't we? You are equipped for every good work. Every sin you commit is always yours. No temptation ever comes overcomes you, but such as is common to man. There's always a way of escape. You can always obey. You need to obey. You are able to obey at all times as a believer. Now. 
Could you do that if you had one or more demons controlling you from within? No, you can't be demon possessed. That's what the word of God says. So don't let anybody tell you that because you're struggling with the sin, you've got a demon. Now, having said that, it is true that a professing Christian who isn't really saved, a deceived believer who thinks they're a believer but are not, a very religious person who has never repented, never placed their faith in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, that person, if God so wills, could have a demon. But not a true believer. Now that was a terrific rabbit trail, wasn't it? Now, let's go back to the lesson that we're trying to learn from this section, and that is this. You must remember that Satan is a faithful church attender. Where is Jesus in this text? He's in the synagogue. When? On the Sabbath. What happens on the Sabbath? All the people of God gather together to worship God and give him glory and sing praises and, and read the scriptures and encourage one another to love and good deeds. And you would think if you have been brainwashed by Hollywood that Satan wouldn't go near a church. There are too many spiritual cooties there. Well, I have news for you. Crosses, holy water, the singing of hymns, Bibles on your lap, scripture on the wall are not forms of demon repellent. They don't work. On the contrary... Demons come in to services just like this, like right now, like earlier, like last week and the week before. And they sit in the pew next to you. Look at them. You can't see them. They're invisible. And they come into the church for the very purpose of keeping unbelievers unbelievers. They want to blind the minds of the unbelievers. They want to snatch away the word when it is sown. They want to distract people to think about other things rather than the words of the songs or uh, the preaching of the word. They, They want to distract people who are not believers to keep them unbelievers. And for believers, they know they can't unsave you. So what they are trying to do is they're trying to distract you from worshiping God, from growing in the Lord. You know, you're worried about your pot roast. Did you turn off the iron this morning? Is it still sitting there in your ironing board smoking right now? I mean, things like that. Um, Little fears, little wonders. uh, What am I going to do on Monday? Let's say you start planning your week and, oh, I got to mow my lawn. When am I going to get that done? And so they will remind you of everything you need to do trying to distract you so that you are distracted from giving God worship and praise and from hearing him speak to you through his word. Remember, we learned from 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 3, that we are to look out for, be aware of false teachers in the church who teach the doctrines of demons. Now, where do they get those doctrines of demons? Do they go out and find the doctrines of demons book, memorize the bad doctrine? No. They are deluded and deceived and tempted by demons to believe things that are false. And then they are the agents of Satan used to infiltrate the church with false doctrine. That's why Paul tells the Ephesian elders in Acts 20 verse 30. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things and drawing away disciples after them. You're out here and all of a sudden there's somebody in there. 
Satan's using that person. And they have all the jargon down, but they're always seeking out people on the margins. Yeah. You know, you know, they, I disagree with the leadership here. I don't really agree with that interpretation. And they're always on the outskirts. They're always picking holes in the interpretation. They're always, they're always getting people who are on the outskirts, fringe people, trying to get a conversation and, and build a relationship. You know, you got to come over to my house because, you know, I've got some things that I would like to talk to you about. And I think you'd be very interested about, you know, these end time things or, you know, these things about the gospel or, you know, the truth about what it means to be a Christian. And they come in and they secretly introduce destructive heresies. And that's how Satan works in the church. He's in here. Jude describes him this way. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed. You don't even know they're coming in. They just go right through our radar. Those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turned the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. You know what? They may give lip service to Jesus. They aren't denying him verbally. They would be easy to spot then. No, they come in unnoticed. And they deny the Lord by living ungodly, licentious, wicked lives. And yet they're here among us. And if you knew what they were doing during the week, you would gasp. And they come in and they try and find friends who they can lead in that same way. And Jude goes on to describe them in verses 12 and 13 with some of the scariest words in all the Bible. These are men who are hidden reefs in your love feasts when they feast with you without fear, caring for themselves, clouds without water, carried along by winds, autumn trees without fruit, doubly dead uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. I mean, that is scary. And where are they? They're here. They may be sitting next to you. The lesson to learn is this. Those who are discerning, those who want to obey God will always be on guard and never drop their guard until they die. Especially in the church, because this is where Satan wants to do damage. He's not worried about all those unbelievers out there. He's already has them. He knows that this is where The people of God gather and we are the ones who are going to impact his kingdom the most. And he doesn't want us to do that. So where he is every Sunday morning is here. And that's why you need to make sure you don't drop your guard. That demon possessed man, the demon made him get up on that Sabbath morning and go to the synagogue Think about it. And it wasn't to glorify God. Third, you can triumph over Satan through Jesus. You can triumph over Satan through Jesus. Since you are in Christ, since Christ is in you, since you have the Holy Spirit, since you can walk in the spirit and be filled with the spirit and walk in the power of the spirit. And you have the word of God, which is living and active. You can triumph over Satan through Christ. Jesus was God in human flesh and he had inherent authority unlike us. And notice what happened. 
When the demon-possessed man shows up to the synagogue. And this is great. I like this passage. Look at verse 33. And he, that's the demon-possessed man, or actually the demon in the possessed man, cried out with a loud voice. Let us alone. What business do we have with each other, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come here to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now, just imagine being in that service. And, you know, you've never had this happen before. Just imagine being the demon who told that guy, okay, get up. We're going to synagogue to see if we can deceive somebody. And you show up and there's God. And when he sees Jesus, he starts screaming. You are the Holy One of God. And then looks what happened. Verse 35. But Jesus rebuked him and said, be quiet. Come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him on the ground in the midst of the people, he came out of him without doing him any harm. I'm sure people in the synagogue were just standing by going, what was that? What was that? And notice what we learn here. Demons are terrified of Jesus, aren't they? Oh, they're terrified of him. Demons know that Jesus is their Lord and has the power to judge them. Demons don't like to do business with Jesus. Demons know where Jesus grew up. Demons know that they will be destroyed by Jesus in the lake of fire. Demons know that Jesus is the Holy One of God. And what's amazing is Jesus or demons do everything Jesus tells them immediately without hesitation. Because he's Lord. And this is where many have gone astray because they wrongfully assume that Christians are equivalent to Jesus. And of course, we aren't even close. We aren't even close. We don't have the same power. We don't have the same authority, except when we speak the word of God. But Jesus had authority in himself since he was God in human flesh. You know, if we had the same power and authority as Jesus, we could just heal Everybody who was sick, we could raise all of our aunts and uncles that, you know, we thought were worthy to be raised. The nice ones. And husbands and wives and anybody we wanted to, we could calm the sea. We could do anything. We have the authority of Jesus. I mean, if we're going to be like Jesus and let's be like Jesus all the way. Of course, that's ridiculous. We can't because we're not Jesus. Jesus could do things because he was God. And Jesus did things to, again, verify that he was the Messiah. He did those incredible acts uh, of power over demons and healing and things like that, things like that to show us who he was, the son of man, the son of God. And if you are ever so unfortunate as to have a conversation with the demon, there will be a rude awakening. If you think you're like Jesus, you will quickly discover that demons are not terrified of you. You will quickly discover that they know that you are not their Lord and you don't have the power to judge them. You will quickly discover that they would love to do business with you. You will quickly discover that 
They might not even know where you grew up. You will discover that they aren't fearful of you. That you will cast them into the lake of fire because they know that you don't have a power to do that. They know that you are not the Holy One of God. And they know they don't have to obey you. That makes you radically different than Jesus, doesn't it? Radically different. But you know what they will do? They'll make you think so. They'll make you think you're like Jesus. Oh, they're good at this. Demons will be glad to give you certain results if those results will deceive you into thinking you have power you don't have. Let me just give you an example. Let's say I start reading some books at the Christian bookstore and you you can find books like this at the Christian bookstore. I have discovered that, you know, if the elders pray over things, certain items, that it makes them holy. It infuses them with the power of God. So I tell the, the elders, you know, you know, listen, I've got some holy water here. I've got some peanut butter and I've got some jelly. And let's pray over these, infuse these with the powers of God. Because I've been reading up some different books and I have discovered that you can use these things in spiritual warfare. So I finally convince them and they say, okay, so now we've got some holy water, holy peanut butter and holy jelly. And now I'm ready because now I can do some spiritual warfare. And I think to myself, well, you know, if any demon possessed person ever comes by, I'm ready. And you know what? As Proverbs eleven twenty seven says, he who seeks evil, what happens? It comes to him. And Satan is probably the one who orchestrated this all together since he is the one who promotes lies and false doctrine. And so what does he do? He brings somebody my way that is demon possessed. Of course, now I discover this. I have a counselee and they come into my office and I'm talking to them. And all of a sudden I realize, whoa, this person is demon possessed or speaking in other voices. They have supernatural strength and, you know, who knows what. But I'm ready. I've got my holy water. So I sprinkle it on them. I put a vertical peanut butter mark, horizontal jelly mark on their forehead. I pray a canned prayer that I got from an exorcism book at the Christian bookstore. And you know what happens? Instantly they become better. All of a sudden the demon's gone. They're clothed in their right mind. They, what happened? How'd I get here? And now the person is healed. I think it works. So I go back to the elder meeting and go, man, you wouldn't believe what happened this week. I used the holy water and the peanut butter jelly. And then I cast this demon out of somebody and immediately they were healed. Oh, praise God. Let's thank the Lord. So we do. And Satan goes, well, I'll send you another one and another one. And every single time it works. Now, what has happened here? What has happened? I'll tell you what's happened. What's happened is I have disregarded the word of God. I have based my doctrine off of experiences instead of the scripture. And now I am trusting in my experience based theology because I have tried it and it has given me results. 
It's worked. And so now I write a book. And the God of this world makes sure it becomes a bestseller. And then Christians all over the place read this book about holy water and holy peanut butter and holy jelly and how to cast out demons. And they all read it. And now they're all equipped and Satan sends people their way. And pretty soon we're all doing these things and Satan is laughing. Why? Because now we are trusting in something that has no power at all as if it did we have bought a lie we have deceived been deceived by him and then even been used by him to deceive other people and i'm telling you this is exactly what's going on in the church today because people aren't going to the word of god and finding out what the bible says and sticking to it and they're going out and basing all of their theology and all these experiences satan would love to give you an experience if he can deceive you he would do it in a second I mean, if he actually thought you thought that, you know, if you had some power that you would do some damage to the church, he'd make you think you had power. So you would do damage to the church. He's no fool. He is very crafty. And the lesson to learn is you will always be led astray from the Bible if you start forming your doctrine and your theology on your experiences, on your feelings, on results, on data, on polls. But how can you triumph over Satan by being a Christian, by being in Jesus, by having the Holy Spirit in you, by walking in the spirit and by teaching, preaching and living the word of God? That's how you do spiritual warfare. If you are a Christian, you triumph over Satan and his demons through Christ. You are a hooper nikao. Overwhelmingly conquer through Christ. But that doesn't make you the Holy One of God. Last point Four. Jesus demonstrates his power over Satan. So you will believe him. Look at verses 36 and 37. And amazement came on them all. And they began talking with one another saying, what is this message for of authority and power? He commands the unclean spirits and they come out. And the report about him was spreading into every locality in the surrounding district. And, and this is the point here. Why did Jesus do all these miraculous sign gifts? Do you know why they're called sign gifts? Because they're signs. And you know what the sign says? There's Jesus. That's what it's for. Miraculous gifts are not to make people better so they can be better. It's not to raise the dead so they can be out of the grave. It's not to calm the sea so that you'll have smooth sailing. All of the miracles are there to authenticate either this is Jesus or this is the messenger who is speaking of Jesus. And that's it. That's what these signs were for. And you can imagine there was a huge sign in the synagogue synagogue that day at Capernaum, wasn't there? This is the Messiah. I mean, how could you miss it? The demon cries out with a loud voice, Holy One of God! And Jesus says, Be quiet, because he doesn't want a demon praising him. The demon throws the man, Dad comes out, and everybody stands back in amazement. Whoa! They were scared. They were terrified. But you know what's a shame? What's sad is later on, we're going to hear Jesus say, Woe to you, Capernaum. For if the miracles had happened 
in Sodom and Gomorrah, which happened to you, they would have repented in dust and ashes. Which tells us that the people of Capernaum, even after Jesus taught like he did in Nazareth and did miracles like they wanted him to do in Nazareth, but he didn't. He did a miracle here right in the middle of the synagogue, knowing this demon would cry out, knowing the demon would proclaim who he was, the Holy One of God, and they still didn't believe. But those people are dead and you're not. And you have the same opportunity right now that they missed. And that is to look at where the signs are pointing. They're pointing to Jesus. And if you've never given your life to Jesus, if you've never submitted to him as your Lord and your Savior, received him as your king and the master of your life, the Savior of your soul, you need to do that today. You don't want to be like Capernaum. Woe to you which means judgment and damnation. God's grace is super abundant. And it is laid before you in the person of Jesus who died on the cross for your sins. He suffered your death. He was buried and then he resurrected from the day, showing that death could not conquer him. And also showing you that he is able to resurrect you from the dead so that dead cannot conquer you. But you need to trust not in your good works, not in your heritage, not in your faithful church attendance. You must trust in Jesus and Jesus alone and his work on the cross to save you. And if you do not do that, you cannot be saved. But if you do, he's laid before you and he will save you and he will change you and he will make you into a new creature. And so if you have not done that, I would encourage you to do that right now today. And don't hesitate. For the rest of us, as we leave here, remember, teach, preach. Talk about, communicate God's word and do it with all authority, which means stick to the text. Because then it has authority. Remember, as you leave here today and you come back next week, that Satan is constantly working at church. Because this is where the saints get equipped to go do damage to his kingdom and he doesn't like it. Never let your guard down. Third, Remember that you can only triumph over Satan through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. It is only through knowing Christ that you receive the Holy Spirit. And all of those things that accompany salvation that make you a child of God and equip you for every good work. And if you don't have Christ, it's not like you might be a victim of Satan. You are a victim of Satan. You are held captive by him to do his will, whether you admit it or not. You are his slave. You either have one of two lords. It's either Christ or it's Satan. There is no in between. There's no neutral. Well, I'm not going to follow Satan, but I'm not going to follow Jesus. No, to not follow Jesus is to follow Satan. And if you do know Christ, you will overwhelmingly conquer. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this text and what we learned just about your power displayed through your son that we might learn from him. That your word has power, that your word has authority, not because it comes from us and our ability to communicate, but because it comes from you, because you spoke your word. 
Help us to remember we are just to administer the word. We are not to make it work. That's your job. And Father, I just pray also that we would all be on guard and never let down our guard, for we know that Satan will come in among us, not sparing the flock, and he will do it through very subtle teachers and people who may say all the right things, but with their life they deny the Lord and live wickedly. Help us not to be infected by the leaven that he sends in among us, the tares among the wheat. And Father, if there is anybody here, there are people here, I'm sure, who don't know you, who've never really given their life to you and have never really been changed, and maybe they're hesitating because they're scared or they're uncertain, and maybe Satan is trying to convince them to wait another day or another week. Father, I pray that right now they would wait no longer. They would cry out to you in repentance. They would place their faith only in Jesus and his death and the cross and resurrection, that they would receive the forgiveness that only you can offer and the free gift of eternal life so that you might change them and help them to walk with you and for your glory for the rest of their days. Father, save them, and may you receive all the praise. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.